Fragments from the Rim presents Real Gamers of Genius. Real Gamers of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Darkside Point Arguer. Mr. Darkside Point Arguer. While most players accept the consequences for their actions, you filibuster how that busload of younglings you blew up would have grown up to be Imperial Loyalists. They totally deserved it. The Sith Lord that just surrendered to you moments ago was probably lying. So you sliced off all his limbs just to keep your fellow party members safe. His name's now Darth Stumpy. We understand. It's not your fault your character's morality isn't understood by the Game Master, or the other players, or anyone not locked up in a maximum security facility. Hello, Clarice! So here's to you, Deflector of the DSP. We will always appreciate how pointless you are. Mr. Darkside won't argue. Fragments from the Rim, Boston, Massachusetts. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. Execute order 66. Coming at you live on Ustream and by podcast at d20radio.com. This is the Order 66 Podcast, brought to you by MapsOfMastery.com. Well, greetings, Gamer Nation. This is Sunday morning, October 31. All Hallows' Eve, if you will. Uh, Ustream is having a problem, so you guys that are in the chat room this early, please bear with us while we work through the problems that are inherent in Ustream's buggy code. I hate you, Ustream. I do, too. And, well, that voice you just heard, you know, while we're here for episode number 120, is none other than GM Chris. What is up, Gamer Nation? I'm Chris here, and uh, those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, this is, of course, the Order 66 podcast, the only podcast entirely devoted to Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing. So, it's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting, it's good, it's clean, it's wholesome. It's so fresh and so clean, clean. It's kind of, it's kind of what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I am stoked because I finally call myself like a professional podcaster now. Ah, uh, yes, we have um, uh, we have like the uh, the dude with the thing and the mixing board. Yes, I, mixing board. I, I can do stuff. I can I can do I can do all kinds of crazy stuff. I can I can be like like it's Chris. <laughs> What's up, man? How are you? I still have my god voice as well. God, oh, and then there's, then there's this. I like this one. Like this one. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, now pitching for the Boston <laughs> Red Sox, Manny Mota. 
Oh, uh, <laughs> see, boys with toys always, always a good thing. Boys with toys. I'm just geeking out. That's the bottom line. But I am tickled, thing. But we got a good show for you guys tonight, and it is Halloween. Indeed. Oh yeah. By the way, I'm GM Dave. Oh, I, I didn't introduce myself, you know, off the top of the show, but you know. That's just the way it goes. Music over. Okay, there you go. Uh, See, look at that. It's almost like I know when it's going to (laughs) end. It's almost like you have something on your screen which shows you that it's about to end. That's that's insane. It's just weird and odd. Co-host. I'm just sent you another co-host because I had to reload you stream. Awesome. Bastage. Bastage you stream. Bad, bad, bad. Accessing. Ah, good. New acquisition. Greetings, Gamer Nation. My designation is KCK Sim, and this is your Hollow News Net update. Ah, uh, yes. So, mm-hmm. on this All Hallows Eve, it um, it's only proper that really? we that we yes we feature uh, one of the most esoteric podcasts on the D Twenty Radio Network, the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, or Love HP it. Podcraft, if you will. They're up to episode number fifty-eight. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh yeah, you listen. You never listen. You listen I, always. I, I I um I I I listen until you know my brain explodes basically. Yes. This is episode number fifty eight, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, part five. It's the fifth and final episode that reviews HP Lovecraft's novelette, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Quite possibly one of I don't know about you, but my favorite H.P. Lovecraft stories. Yeah, it really is. It's probably my favorite, if not if not yeah, one of my favorites. Uh, um, if that's not one, if it's one of my favorites, if not my favorite H.P. Uh, Lovecraft story. It doesn't have a whole lot of you know tentacled Cthulhu horror in it, but it's it's just so it's it's chillingly awesome. It's a good story. Yes, indeed. So, as is the normal uh, case with H.P. Podcraft, Chris and Chad. Provide a lot of witty insight here, exploration into um, really one of the one of the best harder horror and suspense uh, writers that you'll ever come across. And and uh, you know if you haven't read too much Lovecraft and you really want to learn more, or you're Cthulhu aficionado, just revel in the tentacle geekdom that is H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Check it out and find that and lots of other. Really good podcast at, at uh, www.d20radio.com. Ba-ba-bum. Uh, so this week we have juicy bits of web goodness. Um, lots of web goodness this week. Uh, the first is a, a project that, that any of our listeners really need to get involved in. Um, now, Dave, you, you may recall this year's yes, any award winner for uh, the silver for best gaming accessory was Gaming Paper. Uh, they got their start right here on D20 Radio. Oh, yes. As we say, we pimped them out uh, over a year ago when we first encountered them at Gen Con 2009, and uh, they've come quite a long way. Well, their their current product, aside from like you know the, the normal sheet of 
you know, the, the butcher block style sheet of paper is they have a, a set of eight and a half by 11, you know, pre-cut sheets of paper pre-printed with their, their famed style of one inch square grids just ready for your printer. Very cool. Well, they've taken that idea and they've coupled with show sponsor and master cartographer Christopher West to embark upon something truly magnificent. Um, Gaming Paper Adventures uh, is, is the first in a series of maps to be released by Gaming Paper. Uh, Gaming Paper Adventures features 100 double-sided, highly detailed, full-bleed sheets of dungeons drawn by Christopher West. These 100 sheets will form a massive dungeon when put together 10 sheets tall by 10 sheets wide. That's nearly 65 square feet of playing surface. Um, yeah, absolutely huge. One side of the dungeon is furnished and is designed to be this is the setting for the first adventure module released by Gaming Paper called The Citadel of Pain, uh, written by Lou Agresta and Roan Barton. But the back of the sheets are the same tiles, unfurnished, and they can be rearranged in virtually any pattern or set you desire, similar to dungeon tiles, which will completely be usable for your own adventures. Um, and Gaming Paper is even granting permission for uh, you to photocopy these tiles for personal use. So you can reuse the designs over and over and over again. And uh, the Gaming Paper website at uh, www.gamingpaper.com will feature additional adventures that use the Citadel of Pain tiles in various formations uh, written by first-class creators from the role-playing industry like Wolfgang Bauer, Monty Cook. Uh, and these PDFs will be downloadable for a small additional charge and will provide even more use for this massive role-playing item provided by Gaming Paper Adventures and Christopher West. Um, for Star Wars gamers, these tiles can be used for ancient temples, ruins, uh, um, hosts of other ideas in the Star Wars universe. It doesn't all have to be deck-plating, folks. But the key thing, Dave, is that guess how they are funding this project of theirs? Um, radio uh, and television telethon. Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. How about that? Yes. Kickstarter. And they've already reached their goal, um, which was fantastic. They've got over 30 days left, and they've already hit their goal. But, of course, as the way Kickstarter works, you can still contribute, even though they've met their goal, and get it, take advantage of the awesome deals provided to contributors. So for only 22 bucks, $22, you will get the entire 100 sheets of tiles and a PDF of that first adventure. Guys, let's support an awesome company, an awesome product, and an awesome cartographer. Head to www.gamingpaper.com right now to find out more details and to contribute to this project. It's very cool. There you go. Man, man. There's so many good ways to spend your hard-earned dough in gaming. This is a pretty good one. Yep. I would say so. Yep. So, you know, we have to catch up on a couple of different weeks of Awesome Sauce, right? And um, speaking of Awesome Sauce, uh, a lot of it comes out of Star Wars Wednesdays from Sterling Hershey, the man. So, uh, last week, he wowed us with his minis lordship by providing us uh, details for a recent Star Wars miniature scenario he authored for the Kansas City Game Fair, Assault on Intron is a massive eight-person mini skirmish battle. So, um, coupled with a smaller series of Brack Sector skirmishes intended to be playing 
beforehand, the uh, the smaller skirmish influenced the larger battle, which creating an amazingly unique minis event for for all those that are playing. Awesome. Yeah. So uh, he posted the scenario details for us all to play. Yeah. How awesome is that? So that was last week. Uh huh. This week, we get resource gold. He uh, took the time to outline his preferred online resources for Star Wars gaming, and uh, yes, uh, D20 Radio made the list. How about that? Uh-huh. So we want to say thank you to Sterling for the shout-out. Um, you Sterling? Yes, so it's a wealth of very uh, simple links that uh, will give all the Star Wars fans and gamers a ton of resources to use, and you can go right now to sterlinghershey.com and get all this good stuff. Oh. Uh-huh. And uh, while you're in the internet clicking mood and you're going around to websites, you should head to d20radio.com and uh, click on the little link. Uh, you know, it says, you know, join the dark side. We have cookies. cookies. And you should become a D20 Radio partner. Good cookies. Great cookies. Cookies. And uh, so as we're reiterating, we, of course, are offering a new, pro- uh, a new program for those who wish to contribute to the D20 Radio network. Um, you can become a D20 Radio partner. Uh this will result in a recurring payment of six ninety five a month. Now, what do you get for this wonderful six ninety five a month? You, of course, get to support the network you love that brings you so much fun entertainment, but also you will get something tangible for your very use because we are partnering with, uh, of course, MapsOfMastery.com and Master Cartographer Chris West to provide our D20 Radio partners with a specialty map tile custom-made by Chris West every single month. You will receive a PDF. And uh, these map tiles are all designed to fit together to form a giant map. And it's awesome. But what, Dave? Today's the last day for this special introductory offer for partners, right? Yeah, today's the last day. And you get a set of nine to start with instead of just the normal, you know, three or whatever. And um, next month's tiles are going out. I might even send them out tonight as a Halloween surprise. Halloween bonus is surprise. And if, but you know if you if you if you do sign up as part of the initial batch, the first group of partners uh, before um, obviously midnight tonight on October thirty first, uh, then you'll be receiving uh, nine tiles, as Dave said, multiple variants of this of this one tile that Chris has created. Also, we'll be sending you um, another little something from Sterling Hershey, who came to our rescue once again. Uh, lending his talent to provide an exclusive stat block for the vehicle on this tile. Ah, which yes. Which will also be sent out as an exclusive PDF to D20. Yeah. So, we want to call out Andrew Bethel, Phil Majewski. Majewski? Is that how, uh, I always forget his last name, how to say it exactly. Darth GM. Darth GM. <laughs> Infinity Doctor, Darth GM, Torin, Kevin, uh, Athey, or Athey. I'm not sure how you say it, but those three guys... Due to your contributing and partnership, makes things like this possible. We appreciate it. Awesome yeah. sauce, indeed, sir. Um, you know, I I really, you know, what I feel like doing right mm. now. Mm. I feel like stepping into the docking bay. Twenty docking bay hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. 
Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. The 20 Docking Bay, where we answer your questions posted either in the forums, by email, by PM, by Skype, by voicemail, by any way. Carrier pigeon message in a bottle. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, you know, a Google Wave, uh, subspace communication. Uh, Sanskrit on a cave wall. Yes. yes. You travel back in time and, uh, you know, and put, you know, pictograms up on a, on a cave wall. Yeah. For us to find later. That's, that's, that's cool, too. Yeah, that. Yeah, that. So we start this week with uh, Cyril. Mm. Dark Cyril, who is in the uh, chat room right now, whose wife is sleeping. At least, at last report, she was. Ah. And no, you don't have to wear a mask when you check your Halloween email. So, uh, Cyril posted this question on our forums about mounts... Uh, spurred on by the uh, new mountain rules in the unknown regions. So he asked this. How does the condition track of an animal mount interact with that of the rider? Or for that matter, vehicles like speeders and swoops that still offer the rider as a viable target. If the mount is one step down the condition track, do I, as the rider, suffer a minus one penalty amount to my ride checks? If I'm also a step down, does that mean I suffer a cumulative minus two? Uh, I'm thinking the answer to this is that the rider and mount only apply the penalties to the relevant checks that they make, i.e. attacks and defense. And so a ride check would only be affected by the rider's condition track position. But I just wanted to find out what you guys thought and if there was a raw example of uh, something I could point to. Hmm. Well, uh, this is a pretty good question, Cyril. The the answer isn't ex- implicitly spelled out, but it is easily inferred. Oh, so inference, inference. Gotta love the inference. Uh, let, let's start with your supplementary comment on vehicles, um, because that'll kind of lead us towards a solution on this. It is clarified in black and white on page one forty eight of the core rulebook under the condition track section. Let me let me see the condition track <laughs> section. Um, that, that, that when a vehicle is down the condition track, you do apply those condition track penalties to any skill checks made using that vehicle. Um, that that kind of makes sense. If you're you know if you have a vehicle that's falling apart and is taking damage, it's going to be harder to control, harder to use. So that's why that is reflected that way. This section also clarifies that penalties imposed by multiple condition tracks do indeed stack. So if my vehicle's down the condition track and I'm down condition track both those penalties do add to each other bummer so that's how it works with vehicles uh well, okay great gmc that's how it works with vehicles what the heck does it have to do with mounts and riders because that's what we're really talking about here well take a peek in a gander at the sidebar on page 61 of the unknown regions using mounts in combat using mounts in combat <laughs> the point of this sidebar is one thing to point out that riding a mount is nearly identical to piloting a vehicle in most every single way. Considering this was the intent of the designers, I'd be really hard pressed, Cyril, to think that the condition track ruling for vehicles would not also apply to mounts. Yep. It just makes sense to me, Dave. I mean, what if, if your mount is dazed or hurt? I think you're going to have a harder time riding it. You know? Yeah. If my mount is dead, I'm going to have a real hard time. <laughs> Well, yes, yes. But, you know, if it's at the condition track, it's not going to respond the same, you know, and your own checks will suffer as a result. 
I am um, writing an incapacitated rancor. Yes. <laughs> I doubt he'll be able to move. I doubt he'll be able to move. Yeah, very uh, foreshadowing. <laughs> um, it, it could be tempting, Serial, because I know some people on the forums suggested this to say that certain uses of the ride skill would be affected by condition track penalty and others would not. But I would seriously advise against that. Just make it the entire skill. It's just too complicated otherwise, and it violates the case principle. So. There you go. Violation oh. violation of KISS will not be tolerated. If you violate KISS, Gene Simmons will come to your house and kick your butt. Yeah. After he licks you. <laughs> wow! Isn't that awesome, dude? <laughs> I know, dude. I know. I know. Yeah. <clears throat> Moving on. Scouser. Which which sounds to me like skeezer. Not sure why. Somehow I just think I lost Chris. I'm here. No, oh, there you are. You're so quiet now. I I can't I can't hear any background noise because of your awesome setup. Oh, see, I'm I'm tickled happy for that. Wahoo! Yeah. Wow, that's unbelievable. So, interesting quandary. Scouza posts on the forums here this evening or, you know, last week or like three weeks ago or a month even. So he writes this. Do you think that species which get re-rolls or bonuses to specific skills, i.e. Wookiees with climb or Mon Calamari with swim, should get access to these skills regardless of which class they are? In other words, should they always be uh, a part of the class skill list for that character? I'm looking at making a Mon Cal Noble for a campaign I am starting for my sons, and I want them to understand that Star Wars Saga Edition isn't all about shooting things. To achieve this, <laughs> I want them to be able to take classic species like Wookiees and Mon Cal and role-play them properly. It seems strange to me that a Wookiee Scout would be a better swimmer than a Mon Cal Noble, mm. since Scouts have swim as a class skill and Nobles don't. These wouldn't be free skill training, more just an additional option when choosing skills. What do you think? Is this a game breaker or just a flavor enhancement? <laughs> I don't know, dude. That's a good one. That is a good one. That's an excellent question. It's a tough call. And, you know, Saga Edition is not just about shooting things. It's also about slicing things. <laughs> just, I'd like to make that distinction early on. Oh, yeah, by the way. I just oh, wanted. Yeah. I just. I was standing in uh, in Blockbuster, and for about three minutes, I just was staring at the TV. And my wife was like, trying to select a couple of movies to to play because we got a Blu-ray player finally, you know. Ooh. And so we went. We went into Avatar, which you kind of have to do. To to take in the whole thing, but we got a couple of movies as well. And she was looking, and she walked back over. What are you doing? And I'm just standing there with my mouth open, watching this giant TV scrolling this three or four minute trailer <laughs> and she looks up at the tv and she said hey there's sam it was the force unleashed too oh yes and that trailer is some just badass oh yes i've already beaten this game i mean wow what in, in four days no actually it took me about eight hours <laughs> god i've been traveling so i haven't been able to go get it yeah, I know. Um, so, uh, well, no, no uh, we'll talk about this post show, and also talk about the reason why you're standing on a blockbuster. I think that's a bigger concern. 
But, um, uh, you know, it's like the only American left who shops at a blockbuster. No, dude. You know, for your instant gratification, Netflix only goes so far. It goes far enough. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, back to Scouse's question. Um, This is a tough one, man. You know. uh, Oh, by the way, props to you, Scouse, for running a game for your sons, by the way. Uh, Good for you. Oh, yeah. Good job. Um, we had some good suggestions posted up on the forum for this, and I'm going to echo them. Uh, Darth GM put it really well when he said, remember the difference between trained in a skill and culturally, genetically predisposed to a skill. That, that's a big difference. Um, your average skill bonus or your skill reroll just lends itself for a species to be naturally good at certain things. You know, perhaps that race to have a much easier time using those basic untrained uses of the skills. Um, basically, a Mon Cal noble is naturally going to be a better swimmer than a human noble. Uh, a a, a, a Wookiee um, uh, scout is going to be a better climber than a human scout, bottom line. Uh, some species, like, uh, I'm, I'm pointing specifically at the Kathar from Kotor Campaign Guide, don't get rerolls, but like their species stats do basically grant them permanent class skills, uh, climb and stealth, in the case of Kathar. Uh, you know, for certain uh, species like Jawas, where mechanics is always a class skill. There's another option, another example of that. But some would argue that this actually isn't as good as a reroll, and I'd have to consider that. Um, also consider in the case of Moncal, Moncal actually have a base swim speed of four squares. That's a big deal. That means they don't even need to roll swim checks unless they're, you know, fighting against water or whatnot. Um, this means that the Wookiee Scout, who is trained in swim, who makes his swim checks, is still a worse swimmer <laughs> than a Moncal untrained in swimming. Um, because the swim skill states a successful swim check moves you one quarter of your speed through the water. So the Wookiee is stuck with a one and a half square of movement uh, with his swim check. The Moncal naturally gets four squares without even having to make a check. Um, so there's that to consider. But I don't know, Dave. What, what do you think, man? If, if you decide to to make these skills like, you know, swim for a Moncal or climb for a Wookiee, you know, just permanent class skills, you know, based on the species. Um, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's too imbalancing if it makes the game more fun. But I have zero problem with it because aside from skill checks, which, you know, my Wookiee gets to re-roll re, uh, climb checks, mm-hmm. and I have managed to... Use a climb check exactly twice during our entire campaign. And, you know, I mean, I really don't see that that's that big an issue. If you start jacking around with attacks and pluses and permanent, you know, uh, enhancements to some kind of attack or something else, then, yeah, I got a problem with that. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree. You know, it doesn't, I guess, climb and swim don't come up that terribly often. No. Um, No. You know, I mean, it really, in that case, that could be my fault as GM. Um. But if you really wanted to make them class skills, you could. I would. I would still balance it out by removing the reroll, or or the the bonus or whatever it is. Give them one or the other, but not both. That seems to be very consistent with what we see in the species stats for Saga. So, so, yeah. So there you go. Okay, moving on to Pukanui. Puk. Pukunui. Pukunui. <laughs> I just have um, fun with derivation. Okay, 
So uh, here's a good question about uh, a fairly nasty uh, method of attack. He wants to know about poison. Oh. All right. The text states that uh, poison imposes a persistent condition that cannot be removed until cured with treat injury check or until the first time the poison fails an attack roll. So what exactly does that mean? Since uh, poisons continue to attack each round until cured by a treat injury check, what happens if poison succeeds on round one, fails on two, succeeds on three? It's like a yo-yo with the condition track penalties potentially bouncing back and forth between persistent and temporary each round. Or does it mean that the penalty imposed on round one is no longer persistent and can be removed with the recover action, but the penalty imposed on round three is persistent? Huh. Well. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I can see how this can be confusing, but I think I think some folks are making it a little are overcomplicating it a bit, Pook. Um, for those following along, the basic poison rules are covered on page 255 of the core rulebook. Let's start by recapping what poisons do simply okay first off dave when you're poisoned it stinks because the poison will attack you every single round until it is treated right every poison does this every single one poison has its own attack roll against your fortitude defense and if it succeeds it deals some kind of damage Usually, this is just a simple condition track movement, although some really nasty poisons like Dioxys can also deal damage in addition to the condition track movement. So, here's the kicker. As is called out in the rules, when a poison succeeds on its attack and it moves you down the condition track, that becomes a persistent condition. Okay? The persistent condition will remain until the poison is treated and or if the poison fails its attack roll during a round. Remember, a persistent condition means that you can't move up the condition track to normal means, i.e. the recover action. So if you're poisoned and it successfully attacks you, you're hosed. It will continue to attack you each round, and if it succeeds each time, you will be out for the count within five rounds. Because of the persistent condition, you can't just recover to move up the condition track. Now, if someone treats it, then obviously it stops the poison from attacking you. But what if it just fails its, its attack during a round. I mean, that's possible. I mean, Dave, what, what's Salura's fortitude defense at this point? I it's don't pretty, remember. It's pretty high. It's pretty freaking high, okay? It's conceivable that I could really, really well with a poison and uh, hit you one round, but not the next. You know what I mean? And then hit you the third round, or so on, as, as the example. Says. Yeah, that's the example. Yeah. So what happens when it fails its attack? And what that means is that you've lost your persistent condition, but you're still down the condition track. It's just not a persistent condition, and the poison is still coursing through your body, meaning it will continue to attack you each round, moving you down the condition track more if it succeeds, possibly dealing damage, depending on the poison, but it won't be dealing you a persistent condition any longer. And that means that, yes, you can indeed use the recover action to move up the condition track each round, neutralizing the poison's effects. But that's all you can do, Pook. <laughs> you can't move or do anything else because you're devoting three swifts around keep from passing out from the poison. <laughs> right. Makes sense? So, yeah. you know, this can make for some interesting situations in combat, you know, in an encounter, you know, because you, you can, you know, oh, I've got, to, I've got to get over there. You can, you know, spend a move action to do so, but that means you are going to move a step down the condition track this round, you know, and, and you know, eventually, you know, you, you will just pass out from the poison unless it's treated, uh, in which case it can kill you. So th that's kind of how it works. Just, just read the rules exactly as they're written, to come and and I think folks are trying to infer a little too much about it, but in a nutshell, that's how it works, Pukanui. So 
good question, and I hope that clarifies things a bit. Ah. So we have email question, we have forum question, now we have voicemail, call-in question. How about that? How can they call in again? Do you remember? Oh well, gee, there, there's a couple ways they can uh, they can email us uh, a uh, you know a a simple recorded question at gmchris at d20radio.com gmdavid20radio.com or you can call the Lusa line. Go easy two zero six six hundred five eight seven two Lusa L U S A Lusa and um, yes yes so this comes from Lass. Ooh. Ah, yes. I, I just love listening to, uh, to Lass, and uh, we'll do it again right here. Hi, fellas. It's Lass, and I'm sending you a voicemail, because one of my players is far too chicken to do it himself. <laughs> so here's the thing. Huts rock. They're big. They're cuddly. And they have great taste in desert bikini wear. But clearly they're getting screwed by the sock edition rules, since they're stuck as NPC races. Meanwhile, the Neomodians and Vong both got PC upgrades. Furthermore, since Saga came out, I've seen Zero the Hut truck about at faster than two squares around, I suspect. So here's my question. How'd you go about making them a PC race so they're not such bantop poo-too? And they're worthy of a feast of Kratatooine patty frogs. Love the show. And as always, sex in advance. <laughs> God. Huts do rock. Huts rock. Um, yeah, good question. Okay, Huts is a player race, Dave. Mm. Um... For those following along, the hut species is detailed on page 285 of the Saga Edition Core Rulebook. Uh, they're noted as an NPC race. They're, in other words, they're not intended for player use. But then again, both the Nemodians and the Vong also made that list, as last said, and did get their own PC playable write-ups in later books. But the huts have not. Oh, did she say that? I, yes. I was just completely distracted. Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't think I heard anything of it. <laughs> um... So why have the Huts not gotten a PC write-up, and, and what can we do here at Order 66 to remedy that situation? Um, first, let's take a look at the Hut species. Uh, Dave, what are the, uh, what are the, the general you know, defining attributes of, of the Hut species, if we, if we take a look at them? Um, they're big. They are? They're large creatures. Mm-hmm. They have plus two to strength, plus two to con, plus two to intelligence. Uh, but as big giant weasel slugs, they get a minus six <laughs> to dex. <laughs> <laughs> um, they cannot be tripped or knocked prone because they pretty much lie on their belly all the time. Mm-hmm. They get a plus five species bonus to will defense against force effects. Ho, ho. Mm-hmm. And can reroll any persuasion check and take the better result. <laughs> However... As I think last said somewhere in there, two square move movement speed. So, yeah. uh, you know that's pretty. Well, what do you what do you think about those stats right there? I mean, are they are they solid? Do they represent what we see in the films? Are uh, they lacking something? I think that is. I mean, they they are very slow. Obviously, I mean that's what you see in the film. I mean, I I know that I know she said that they you know you hate getting them saddled with a two square movement speed, but 
Yeah, I mean, like, well, like, like she mentioned, like, Zero the Hut in a Clone Wars cartoon. She says he's moving a lot faster than two squares around. Well, he could have been moving, you know, four squares around, some people are spending two move actions, or he could be moving eight squares around by running, okay? <laughs> so, th- there is that. Um, but I don't... I don't know, man. I-, I can't see using, you know, one character in the cartoon to justify the rewrite of what I think is a balanced species stat block. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think the speed sucks, but the bonus against force effects, that's nice. And no, yeah, it's tight. You're, you're, you're right. I mean... <sighs> but then again, and the persuasion re- the re-roll, uh, yeah. The yeah the, oh, my God. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as a Wookiee, I should be able to... I've always argued that I should be able to intimidate and I hate the fact that it's lumped in with persuasion because that chaps my ass. Yeah. But being able to re-roll, very handy. You know, is is still re is still handy. I wish I could take the better result. But yeah, that's know. that's what I'm saying. It's almost over overbalancing, and that two square speed is a real balancing factor. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. So what happens if a hut decides to run? <laughs> he slithers really fast at four times his base speed. <laughs> oh man. Um, so honestly, if your player wants to play a hut last uh, and gain these benefits, guess what? They've got a two square speed. That's my take on it. Um, if you or your player don't want to stomach that, you might balance it out a bit. Okay, if you boost hut speed up to four squares, that's doable. But I would alter their ability to reroll persuasion checks, forcing them to take the second roll instead of the better. Um, that still makes them a very powerful character option. Um, but if you if you bump their speed while leaving everything else the way it is, it's going to be too powerful. That's my two cents. So. Okay. I think I'm. Uh, I think I'm. I think that's going with the dealio right there. Okay. Well, though, seriously though, should huts be a player race? I mean, I understand the draw for it, but to me in Star Wars, huts have always been more, more of this, almost a set they, piece. Yeah, they all. They've never been in my opinion anyway, a an integral part of any storyline, aside from just always being kind of this uh, dark shadow waiting to send bounty hunters after you if you drop your cargo, you know, or whatnot. So. Aside from that, I, I really, I don't know. I, I Somebody would have to make a pretty compelling case to put it in as a PC. I agree. I agree. So. Well, it's a good question. Thank you for the call in. And of course, you guys can uh, send us a voicemail question yourself or email us, as we said earlier, GM Chris, GM Dave with d20radio.com. Head to the forums, d20radio.com slash forums, and uh, post up your mind, get your voice heard, because we want to hear it. Absolutely. All right, man, let's go suspend some rules. Request a motion to suspend the rules. You were gonna suspend the rules? Shut up, Sharjah! Motion granted.
That open still just makes me laugh. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, that's good. Well, welcome to Suspending the Rules, our semi-regular segment where we take a look at house rules submitted by you, the Gamer Nation, for use in your Star Wars games. Indeed. What, so, are, what are we talking about this week? We have Han Solo, International Man of Mystery. Or, better yet, Man of Style. So we have Destiny Points, we have Force Points. Now we have, you got it, Style Points. Okay, who, 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 who thought of this? I, I like it already. Alright, this house rule was posted by one of our D20 radio partners, P2 Feed. So he's created this entirely new subset of rules designed to reward players for great role-playing. Okay. Alright, so here it is, the concept of the style point. Whenever a player tries to do something that is just flat awesome and in character, of course per GM discretion, you get a style point. So GMs can award style points. Whether your action works or fails miserably, it doesn't matter. It's the intent and the style that matters, and that's where you get your style point. So the fact that Je- that Brev jumped out a window to try and attack someone and fell and almost killed himself, knocked himself unconscious, that doesn't matter. He gets a no, style point. Yeah, he failed, but he still gets a style point. Exactly. That was fun. All right. What can you do with them? You can, st- you can spend a style point in three ways, according to P2 Theed. Spend one before you make a D20 roll and add a plus two style bonus to the roll. Okay. And spend one after you make the roll and you gain a plus one style bonus to the roll. Or, if an attack hits your reflex defense exactly, you can spend a style point as a reaction to make the attack miss. <laughs> so boosting your attack, boosting your reflex defense by one by retroactively, one. basically. That's right. So style bonuses stack, so you can spend multiple for a single action. Mm. I like to use poker chips to represent the style points. It's easy to toss one out when they do something entertaining, and having uh, something physically there in front of them reminds them that they have some bonuses to throw around if they want to. <laughs> That's a Colt 45 moment right there. That's all right. <laughs> okay, I, I love this. It reminds me of the fate points from the fate system, you know, like Spirit of the Century, Dresden Files. Um, I think this is a great way to encourage fun play and in-character thinking. I know it's a new thing to keep track of, but it's not exactly complex. Nah. Um, Poker chips, man, that's greatness. Yeah, that's greatness. I mean, that's that's what they recommend using is just some type of token, you know, for fate system, for fate points, and... Um, that's great, but what a fun way to encourage role-playing. I really, really like this. Um, I think, Dave, to make it work smoothly, there's a few things you can do uh, to help it out if you want to use this in your own game. Um, if your characters have backgrounds written, I think it's pretty easy to find what their style is, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but what if you're running a quick game? What if you don't have a, char- don't have a character with a background? I think in lieu of that, and maybe do this anyway, have every character create a character statement. Just a few short words that defines their character and their character's style. Ah, mission statements. Yes. Things like, never tell me the odds. Oh, classic solo. Classic solo. Or, peace through serenity. Whoa. Skype Gak. He said, peace through serenity. I Skype Gacking. Sorry. Yeah. It's okay. Or how about, Wookiee Smash. Purr. 
so just a little mission statement there. Character statement can help define a character's style and uh, a, a good way to help the GM make that determination and help the player decide which direction to go in. But what a cool little what a cool little uh, house rule. I really like this. I like this a lot. Yeah. Me too. Therefore, it gets two thumbs up from the Order 66 podcast. Two thumbs up. Two, yeah. two. Two thumbs up. Oh, boy. Here we go. Again, playing with oneself. Uh, new <laughs> toys. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, Darth GM, uh, again, uh, fails to disappoint with fragments from the rim. Uh, by the way, that was, a, that was absolute greatness. The uh, real man of genius. Uh, yes, real gamer of genius. Of yeah. Um, I'm like I, I want I want to collaborate with you uh, on this, sir. I I am a fan of your ideas and would like to subscribe to your publication. <laughs> <laughs> I love that deflector of the DSP. That um, is greatness. His name is Darth Stubby. Hello, Clarice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. So uh, yeah, we will uh, before we get into the meat of the show, we'll stop down for a couple of minutes here and uh, listen to GM Phil and. Fragments from the Rim. My lords, welcome to Fragments from the Rim. What is thy bidding, my masters? This is Darth GM, and this is the 65th episode of Fragments from the Rim. And you have failed me for the last time, Gamer Nation. Not a single one of you emailed in with a talent or a feat that works with the ambush specialist talent tree like I asked you to back in episode 64. Of course, this is probably because you also found that there weren't any other talents or feats out there that would work with the ambush specialist talent. All right, Gamer Nation, you get a buy on this. You can fail me again in a, one more time. So continuing the discussion about the ambusher talent tree, we come to my two favorite talents that go along with this ambush specialist talent. Destructive ambusher and keep it going. Keep it going states if you reduce your prime target to zero hit points, as a free action, you can designate another target within your line of sight as your new prime target. This new target remains your prime target until the end of the encounter. Now, if you remember, the ambush specialist allows you to pick one guy at the beginning of your surprise round, and you gain a plus two morale bonus to attack rolls against that prime target until the end of the encounter. This allows you to, if you drop that guy, move your a bonus to someone else. That's another plus two bonus for another guy. I don't know about you guys, but I ain't turning down a plus two bonus to attack rolls. Not happening. The other talent I like is the destructive ambusher. After you designate your prime target, you deal plus one die of damage on attacks against the prime target until the end of the encounter. So let me get this straight. I choose a prime target at the beginning of the round. Doesn't have to have a surprise round because I have the ambush specialist talent. With these three talents... I am plus two attack and plus one die of damage. Yeah, I don't see a problem there. One downside is that to use keep it going, you have to drop your target. You have to be the one to reduce it to zero hit points. If someone else reduces it to zero hit points, you don't get to change its target. So dealing that extra die of damage just increases your odds that you're going to be the one to drop your prime target. Now, here's something else to consider. If you've got a decent bonus to attack, which you should because these are soldier talents, you may not actually need that extra plus two. So you can use that plus two to attack to offset things like, say, power attack or rapid shot or rapid strike. Minus two for rapid strike, plus two from prime target due to ambush specialist. And you're not dealing one extra die of damage. You're dealing two. 
That sounds like a really nice way to keep that damage rolling. All right, Gamer Nation, we're setting up for the 66th episode of Fragments from the Rim coming at you next week. We'll see you there. If you have any questions, send them to d20darth at gmail.com. Until then, Gamer Nation, 20 side up, one side down. You have been listening to Fragments from the Rim and Transmission. Yeah. All right, that's a bailout right there is what that is. A bailout? That's yeah, weird. Yeah, that yours would work and mine would not. Oh. It's just odd. It is extremely odd. It is weird. Weird, weird, weird. But, you know what? We haven't uh, gotten ourselves a new bed, but I'm going to use this anyway. Whispers of the Force. I know it's Visions of the Force, but <laughs> one day we'll get Cat to record Visions of the Force. Until then, I'll enjoy the silver tones of Clannad. Clannad, that's right. <laughs> All right, Gamer Nation, welcome back to Visions of the Force. Um, today's discussion continues the request of many members of the Gamer Nation, asking us to delve into the various Force traditions of the Star Wars universe outside of the Jedi and Sith. Um... Rather fitting to the auspicious date of our broadcast today, oh. we're going to be getting all witchy on you tonight. Witch, witch, witch. All witchy on you for Halloween. Oh. This is right. We're going to delve into the witches of Daphomir, Force tradition. Oh. and um, We're going to discuss the history of the tradition. We're going to help players GMs better understand the characterization and role-playing of such a character. And of course, we're going to peek into the saga talent tree for the witches. Uh, talking about how to best integrate those talents into a character. Nice. So, the rule of thumb is, if the if this woman of Dathomir weighs as much as a duck, then she's a witch. Yeah, if she if she sinks, that's yeah. That's right. Float, yeah, all that. Or, or actually, if you probably bring a duck, she probably just kill you and you know have her giant pet rank or each you and then say don't ever do that again and you say yes, ma'am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, welcome back to our Visions of the Force segment. Grab your Night Sister robes and your Rancor harnesses, guys, and let's get witchy. Let's get witchy with it. Witchy with it. Yeah. So, Dave, let's let's kind of, um, you know, again, as we said last time, you know, you're you're not exactly an EU guru. No. Um, but uh, the the witches hold an interesting place in Star Wars canon. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, just you know. Setting the mood. Very, very mood setting, actually. Naturally. Um, so talk, let's talk a little bit about, about the witches of Dathomir and sort of their birth and where they come from. Uh, let uh, me guess. Dathomir. Dathomir. Wow. I mean, sort, sort of um, a system of, of power out of subjugation. So the witches are, are native to the planet of Dathomir, and they were really the the unintended result of, of a prison sentence for a Jedi gone terribly astray. Um, 
And over the centuries, the witches have helped bring order and primitive civilization to an entire planet, and they've they've mastered some of the more unique force abilities in the galaxy. Ah. But, Dave, talk to me about the, the founding of the Witches of Dathomir. All right, so what we'll call this is a, a Jedi's banishment. So 600 years before Battle of Yavin, uh, the Jedi Knight Alia was a servant of the Old Republic gone astray. So, seduced by evil, fallen to the dark side, Alia was brought before the Jedi Council for her crimes. Had to be a woman, of course. Mm. Uh, But, this was commonly the way of the Jedi. The Council refused to execute her. Uh, And instead, they sentenced her to imprisonment on an isolated world, that being Dathomir. Mm. Dathomir was a world of vicious uh, wildlife, rugged jungle, no civilization, no technology. And it was really used as as a penal colony, much as it was for uh, Captain Kirk and McCoy. (laughs) Uh, You know, so it was anyway. It was it was a penal colony for some of the Republic's worst criminals. Uh, the Jedi Counselor, uh, the Jedi Council, actually hoped that uh, that the time spent in isolation and harsh conditions of Dathomir would allow her to reflect on their teaching and return to the light, and so she was banished to Dathomir. Okay, as much as I hate Karen Travis's continual bashing of the Jedi, there's times when I do have to scratch my head. Okay, this woman has fallen to the dark side. We don't want to execute her for being evil. We want her to, you know, return to the light. So let's exile her to a, <laughs> a primitive planet filled with dangerous wildlife and the worst criminals of the galaxy. Maybe that'll help her out. I, I kind of got to question the Jedi Council's decision on this, Dave. Yeah, me too. Okay. Perfect. Now I lost Chris. No, I'm positive I lost Chris. Yeah. All right, so somewhere in here, I'm going to call him back because uh, Skype is just being a butt. And, you know, it is what it is. But anyway, the rea- while I'm getting him back, the reality of Dathomir is that it's just, you know, absolutely as wild as uh, Ali had feared. But when she uh, arrived, she actually discovered a rather large and scattered human population. The descendants of criminals and other exiles um, all lived in a state of semi... The person whom you're trying to is currently unavailable. Unbelievable. That's just terrible. Well, he'll call me back, I guess, maybe at some point in time. So, um, all in a state of semi-barbarism brought on by uh, the relationship really in the food chain of, of Dathomir, the the planet was really, as Alia discovered, uh, home to a, a rather large population of rancors, which hunted the humans as prey. So anyway, um, while I have Chris back, basically I was kind of going over the reality of what Dathomir was, which was basically everything that she had feared. Yes. I'm not sure when I dropped. Uh, I'm not sure when you dropped either because I turned my head because uh, my wife walked into the room and uh, I had turned everything down while I talked to her and all of a sudden I turned back and you were gone. So, Well, I, I was saying that, you know, I, I got to question the wisdom of the Jedi Council on this, Dave. Oh, uh, yeah, as far as the, as far as <laughs> allowing her to be exiled instead of uh, uh, assassinated? Well, not even that. It's just like, you know, hey, we want to rehabilitate you. 
okay? We want to rehabilitate. We don't want to kill you. We want to rehabilitate. We want you to think about what you've done, okay? We want you to think really hard. So we're going to send you to this isolated, primitive world filled with man-eating rancors and the most hardened criminals in the galaxy. Yeah, think about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, I, I kind of have to take issue with that. But, yeah, so Dathomir, not a nice place. No, not at all. Lots no. of rancors. Lots of rancors. Yeah. Well, really what came out of this was what ultimately was it was a new culture. Um, now, Dathomirian history itself is rather subjective, and, and much of it is probably propaganda. But the stories of their culture, 600 years later, tell of how Alia used her powers to unite the humans of Dathomir under her leadership and drive off the rancors. Um, she created a leadership cast of force-sensitive women whom she taught her secrets to. And then took as their servants the willing men of the world. Oh, yes. Who were, were all too happy to no longer be rancor snacks. Um, and <laughs> since then, the witches have ruled with the power of their magic and the might of now domesticated rancors. That's um, odd. Uh, the domesticated rancor. Yeah. We're around them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, but yeah, basically they, they rule everything. Men in this world are, um, are slaves, basically. Hey, I can live with it. If, uh, if the witch is, uh, hot and she speaks like, um, has a voice like, um, Lass, then I'm in. It's like, you know, I'm fine as long as the witch is hot. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the state of the death of Mary, which is currently. Okay. So after 600 years. The witches of Dathomir remain the rulers of the primitive world. Uh, the legacy that Alia created has stood the test of time, uh, creating a society where women rule over men with, with unusual force powers at their disposal and, you know, nasty claws of rancor, stench, teeth, biting with, yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess the question is, though, are they evil? Are they, are they dark side? Are they, are they light side? Um... You know, I I don't know, dude. Talk to us about the talk to us about the Book of Law. The Book of Law. So, this is unclear whether Alia ever returned to the light. However, some think that she at least turned away from the dark side, at least somewhat. Mm. Uh, so, uh, this is kind of evident in her creation of the Book of Law a guide to her daughters and all the future witches of Dathomir on how to practice the safe uses of their magic, quote-unquote, was based heavily on the Jedi Code, which would lead you to believe that it was back toward the light side. And although it stressed uh, maintaining dominance, it warned against conceding to evil. So, yeah. Yeah. And that's a that's a a key point. Now, not all of her offspring would would follow that to um, to the letter. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, specifically, uh, you know, the witches of Dathomir would split eventually into several clans. Um, you know, sometimes as much as a dozen or so, each with their own interpretation of the Book of the Law. Um, each sort of settled around um, a specific village. Uh, uh, you know, the clan taking its name usually from a dominant geographic feature. Uh, some clans, however, did follow the path of corruption. 
um, these these night sisters, as they called themselves, gave themselves to the dark side of the force and created rifts in the culture of the witches. See, always the night sisters. Why why does it always have to be the night sisters? <laughs> I wasn't aware that uh, that was a common, you know, <laughs> the night sisters. Ha ha. <laughs> you know, like the pointer sisters. Nothing good ever came out of that. God, they point too much. Ugh. <laughs> those those pointer sisters, man. They just they point way too much. I'm sorry. Man, Skype just hates you today. Why? What does Skype do to me? Oh, it's just it's just you're just cutting in and out. I am sorry. No, it's not your fault. It's Skype. No Stupid. worries. Stupid Skype. Well, okay. Talk to me about sort of what happened to the the order of of the witches of Dathomir uh, as as time progressed. Yeah. So as time goes by, the uh, the empire you know obviously gets destroyed. And the new Jedi Order, Luke Skywalker, uh, taking point there, begins seeking out other traditions of force use to learn from and to bolster their numbers. So the witches of Dathomir were actually the first that they encountered, and uh, the various clans and practices coupled with uh, imperial remnant interest in the world created many troubles and trials for the New Republic. Eventually, many Dathomeri uh, witches uh, joined the New Jedi Order, and Dathomir itself became a part of the New Republic. Really? Yeah. How about that? Ah, okay. She's a witch. She <laughs> She's a witch. Sparta! Um, so, okay, so th- th- that's, that's the which is a Dathomir in a nutshell. Let's talk about what what makes you a witch of Dathomir? Not me. I'm not. Um, well, okay. If, if you want to play one, oh, okay. Character to be a witch of Dathomir. Um, you know, as a, as a Dathomir witch, you're you're trained in the use of your your magic in a very practice sense uh, that emphasizes above all else control and dominance. Um, you don't follow a, a light or a dark path, but you have a strong moral principle which which puts women above men, and uh, oh. and ensures that you. You use your gifts to provide protection, control, and order. I'm not about um, that. Yeah. Um, well, explain on this for me, dude. Let's talk about the philosophy of, of of a character who is a witch of Dathomir. What what is their general philosophy and outlook in the world going to be like? If if you're a witch of Dathomir, basically, you your purpose is to exist to rule over the world, right? With genuine concern for the safety of your people. Of- with Firm conviction that you are the reason that the safety exists. <laughs> so you're kind of like a cat in that regard. Very, ah, okay, okay, okay. All right. So you have a responsibility to be a witch, a strong warrior, and a powerful leader. Uh, now, depending on your clan, you might be deeply honorable or rely on some manner of subterfuge, whichever route ensures you hold on to your leadership. So you're very disciplined. Regardless of your methods, you follow them with a strict zeal. But you still recognize the fact that the dark side provides power, but at too high of a cost, eventually causing you to lose control. So there's your philosophy on the back of a cereal box. On the back of a cereal box. Okay, I I think, um, although I didn't put it in the show notes, 
I think it's important to talk about. We we spoke about the Book of Law earlier. Yeah. Um, I I think um, kind of repeating the laws would kind of help give you a good insight into the the outlook of the witches. Okay. So these are these are the laws. Okay, the Book of Law. Daughters of Alia, learn these words and learn them well, for they are the foundations that will increase your strength and keep you safe from harm. Those who suffer emotion will never enjoy peace. Sound familiar? Yes. Those who choose ignorance will never know their own greatness. Here's where it is. Those who yield to passion will fail to dominate. So not so much like passion's bad because passion leads to all, you know bad things. It's like, yeah, if you yield to passion, you're going to lose control. Those who fear death will never achieve pure power. Never forget that your magic must always be used wisely. Never concede to evil, lest you be consumed by it. So, that's it in a nutshell. And I think that, I think that adds a lot to the uh, the philosophy. You know what I mean? Their their mindset. But. Let's talk about the practices of the witches. Um, witches belong to a very primitive culture, and they, they shun the use of advanced weaponry, uh, preferring to rely on primitive weapons and armor, you know, what they know, or, or on the power of nature to decimate their foes. Oh. And, oh? Yes. Yes. Bow and, and arrow, and you uh, tie with Iowa. Yes. But uh, honestly, um, this manifests in a, in a rather bigger way than a bow and arrow, and really, like, they don't really need weaponry at all if you're on Dathomir because of uh, one overriding feature that people commonly associate with the witches, and that is their rancors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, if the witches have one defining characteristic, it is the fearsome rancors, which they ride as mounts and pets. Uh, each witch is usually bonded to an individual rancor, and they are trained to use their abilities to communicate with and control these mighty beasts. <sighs> So that's pretty wicked. <laughs> yeah, when was the last time you went toe-to-toe with a rancor, rancor and survived? I've not done so. Uh, gone toe-to-toe with a rancor or survived. <laughs> <laughs> but all the same, that this, that's pretty wicked for a witch. You can say they're wicked witches. Oh! We lost all nine of our listeners. <laughs> oh, man. So... Okay, uh, abilities, Dave. What, what about the abilities of the witches? Uh, okay, so they're primitive, but they are powerful force users. Very much about precise control, whether it's a situation, the force, or the wildlife that surrounds them. That's what we're talking about. Precise control. So how do you become a Dathomiri witch? In game terms, how do you become a Dathomiri witch? Uh, how do you learn their ways? Well... Only, and, and the court rule book clarifies this, only force-sensitive females from the planet of Dathomir, from the rise of the Empire era onward, can become Dathomiri witches. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, so That's it. Yeah, because if you're a dude, you're a slave. You're, you're a slave. And it's you're, not a Dathomiri wizard now, is it? No, it's a Dathomiri witch. And if you're a dude, you're a slave. And that's, what, that's your role. So, okay, let, let's delve into um, the Dathomiri Witch talent tree, the, the oh. talent tree that, that really defines... You, you, mean, you mean that we have a talent tree devoted to something? Wow. Hey, it's amazing. It's funny how the system works, isn't it? Funny. 
It's amazing. Well, the talent tree for the Witches of Dathomir tradition is found on page 107 of the Saga Edition Core Rulebook, and it represents the witch's ability to control wildlife, uh, notably the, the vicious rancors of their homeworld, and again, precise control over their other force abilities. And these talents may be selected similar to force talents any time a force-sensitive character qualifies for the talent, or for a talent, but may only be taken by characters that are members of the Witches of Dathomir tradition. Ah, so, yes. And as we've discussed earlier, that's not necessarily easy to do. No. <laughs> so, okay, talk to me, man. Talk to me about the first talent we're going we're gonna to discuss in this tree. Charm Beast. Ah. Yes. So, make a use the force check in place of a persuasion check when attempting to uh, change the attitude of an undomesticated creature with an intelligence score of two or less. So, basically, a wild animal. And uh, this will not, you will not suffer uh, the normal minus five penalty if the creature cannot speak or understand your language. So it's pretty simple and it's pretty useful, especially against like a raging rancor, for example. <laughs> and it's a prereq for some other stuff. It is, uh, particularly for the next talent, uh, which is Command Beast. So whenever you manage to shift the attitude of a beast to indifferent or friendly, which is pretty easy with Charm Beast. Um, you may now cre- treat that creature as a domesticated animal, uh, but only for you. In other words, it still acts like a wild animal towards other people. Um, you can use this animal as a mount, as long as it is at least one size category larger than you, and you're, you're able to sit on it. You, know, you have a comfortable place you can sit on it in order to be mounted. Um, dude, the benefits here are pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> Although they may not come up that often in a normal Star Wars game. But yeah, being able to... Uh, you know, just, you know, waggle your fingers at the uh, at the rancor and then uh, make him get down and put you on his back and, you know, ride him around shouting, yippee, all day. It's, it's pretty freaking cool. Yee-haw. 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 I mean, there's lots of nasty, nasty beasts out there in the Star Wars universe uh, that this could be used again. Dude, what about space slugs? <laughs> pretty, I mean, they've never been set it up, but but I can't imagine they have. I mean, they're, they're probably beasts with an intelligence of two or less, right? I would imagine. It's just a space slug. You see this witch of death mirror in a space suit riding a space slug. Just, yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> Minoc. The Exogorth. Oh, uh, Minoc wouldn't work unless it's a really big Minoc. But it could be. Maybe it's like a giant Minoc. <laughs> cool. Cool. So, what's next in the trick? Uh, okay, that would be the Adept Spellcaster. This is um, a little bit of an odd talent, but it allows you to sacrifice speed for better control. So you can basically use any force power that normally requires a swift, a move, or a standard action as a full round action instead. And if you do so, you can re-roll... They use the force check to activate the power, but you have to take the second roll. So you sacrifice your speed, you make it a full round action, and you get to re-roll it if if need be. That's not bad. No, you know? It's uh it it's really good to use for those high DC force powers or when you really need to pull off a good roll. Yeah. Yep, and it's a prerequisite for something else. The last talent in the tree. Ah. Uh, flight. Uh, one of the more unique abilities of the witches. Um, as a swift action, you can spend a force point to gain a fly speed equal to your land speed. Bottom line. 
you ascend at half speed, descend at double speed. Uh, this flight lasts until the start of your next turn. So this is this is wickedly cool and unusual, and it can provide numerous benefits to many situations. Um, the force point expenditure to get this is a little rough, you know. Uh, it only lasts around, you know what I mean? Yeah. But you can run at quadruple your speed, so that means you know for your average character you're talking about fly, uh, 24 square flight in one round. You can double move, you know, 12 squares, 12 square flight in one round. That's that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, for the cost of a force point, it can seriously save your butt. Um, especially if you're falling, because you can descend at double speed. If I fall out of a speeder, I can spend a force point and, you know, I can move down, uh, descend of, of flight speed of, uh, of, of 48 squares, um, you know, and, and just land on the ground if I'm close enough. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, plus, as we'll get to later, there's many options you can choose for your character that will help mitigate this and uh, provide you with some more force points to use flight for. But um, it's unusual, but it can be very beneficial. Yeah. So, so, oh. so now, how, how my my big question is: How do you play a Death Mary Witch? Mm. Uh, well, there, there's there's some things to consider. Uh, this is not an easy choice, and we're going to talk about it. it but if the idea of playing a witch, Dathomir, intrigues you. There are a few ways you can make a character of this type, playing to its strengths and character needs, as well as following suit with the traditions and mores of the character's background. Um, I think, Dave, there's also several things for a GM to consider um, in designing a game for such a character, and, of course, some pitfalls to watch out for. Um, so let's talk about making a good witch. <laughs> are, you a, are you a good witch, or are you a bad witch? Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh, I'm not any kind of witch. Uh, so for, for for this force tradition, there there are several good ways to get there, um, and some things you should definitely do. So what, man? As far as feats go, what? As force sensi- force sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. I uh, uh, cool. Ah, that's all we heard. So, yeah. Oh, sorry. I said it. So, as far as as far as feats go, what force sensitivity? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Force sensitivity, obviously, because that's a prerequisite. You have to be a force sensitive female. Obviously, obviously. Right. Skill focus. Use the force. And force training. Got to have your force powers. Right. Those are musts. What yeah. about what about yeah. like force boon? That's a wise choice because it will, as we said, let you use your flight more frequently. There you go. Um, very useful. Um. So what, dude? I mean, so what? What the the, the Jedi class is just made for this uh, this tradition, right? Uh, well, um, <laughs> you know, as uh, somebody in the forums posted, it, it really is kind of a gray area. They're uh, they're they're not light, they're not dark, they're gray. So uh, they're not Jedi or Sith. Yeah. So they don't hail from the traditions. They don't use advanced technology, which pretty much rules out a lightsaber. Now, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So you you know you may not have even heard or, or seen one if you're you know uh, anyway Jedi class is just out yeah pretty much makes makes zero sense for this character concept um you hail from a primitive and wild world with you know with with a fairly primitive culture I mean there's there's rancors roaming around eating people for Pete's sake yeah uh, I think levels in Scout are an excellent choice. Uh, to gain, you know, some of the scout's survivalist abilities, and as well as access to survival, and oh yeah, the, uh, obviously the survival skill, and ride. Oh yeah, you kind of need that if you're going to ride a rancor. Yeah, pretty much. 
uh, ride uh, is, is kind of essential there. Um, certain feats can help uh, really help you out if you if you choose the scout path. Uh, feats like Informer, uh, Unwavering Resolve, uh, those will turn your natural scouty abilities into, into powerful leadership tools. Um, I'm also a huge fan of the scout's versatility talent tree, uh, which provides many good choices that reflect your survival instinct, providing right. natural control over a situation. Right. But ultimately, Dave, I mean, as a witch, regardless of what class you choose, I think your talents should primarily be spent on the Dathomiri witch talents and general force talents. You know, your altered control sense, all that. That's right. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think Ganth has got it right, too, that you need to take a level and make sure and pick up the um, evade falling houses talent. That's a very, very good point. Um, that, that's available in the, in the Oz source book, um, which is coming out next year. <laughs> Uh, but um, so okay. So aside from aside from scout, what I mean, are there any other classes that are that are really a, a good choice for a witch of Dathomir? Uh, I think potentially, you know, if you're going to be a leader, mm-hmm. and you want to be able to persuade or deceive, you see where I'm going here. Mm-hmm. Noble. Yes. You know, because these women are leaders, they do have to um, keep their slaves in line, and uh, I, you know, a lot of them are a lot of the talent. A lot of the talents are 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 um, are, are useful. I, I I would caution against lineage because that's kind of flies in the face of the whole. Yeah, it, it being educated or wealthy or having connections doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> right. For a witch of Dathomir. Also, I think it's important to note, Dave, that um, there's only two classes in the Quora book that have a ride on their skill list. Scout is one, and the other, of course, oh, is Noble. noble. Yes. How noble? You have chosen wisely. Ah, yes. So Not poorly. Wisely. Yep. So, yeah, the uh, the chat room called it Force Adept. Yeah. Is the way to go you get later. Yep. And ultimately, Force Disciple. Yeah, that's where I think, yeah, that's where you would go. Yeah. And, of course, when you start learning Force techniques, what's the first one you should learn? Oh, Force Point Recovery. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, flight. Yay! Um, also, I think the Beast Warden talent tree makes eminently good sense, um, as do the, the, the primitive themes of the Force Item talent tree, Imbue Item, uh, Talisman, things like that, and the, the esoteric abilities of the, of the Mystic talent tree. Um, yeah. All really well with this paradigm yeah i think so too yeah um one of the recommendation i guess we could make um for the player character the witches are known for their aptitude with beasts you know specifically rancors right so take the time player to open up your unknown regions book and learn about mounts and companion beasts the rules are there Work with your GM to ensure your character has a companion beast to adventure with. Uh, maybe even sacrificing some of your unnecessary weapon proficiency feats in exchange for such a creature. Um, that's kind of the, the key of, of who you are you know, uh, and, and what you can do. It's about, it's about half of your shtick. So work with your GM to try and find a way to make that work. So, yeah. I think so. All right, so that's how you play one. Uh-huh. So, what um, what can come up? What what are the bad things that can come up as a player or as a GM? 
Oh, the pitfalls. Um, okay, let's start with the player's side. Or, right. uh, um, I, th- I think as a witch, you, you face a really unusual predicament which requires a strong role player to cope with. Um, so as we're talking about, you know, what class is best fit with this this character type, Dave, and, and you were mentioning a noble scout. Um, I don't know if you noticed that there's something inherent in both of those classes that, that kind of flies in the face of of the fundamental primitive nature of uh, the Death Mary Witch. Oh, yeah, like, for example, um, weapon proficiency, pistol, blasters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I mean... Uh, I don't know. Like you know, your your Ewoks, Gamorians, you know they're primitive. They are, but you know you're you're a human most likely. Right. You're not primitive by nature. It's not it's not a feature of your species so much as it is your your background. You know. Yeah. So if you decide to do a, a Dathomiri witch after first contact, if you will, with the new Jedi Order. Yeah. Then maybe, maybe yeah maybe you can use technology a little bit, but. That would make sense, but earlier it's kind of questionable, and so you're you're in this weird situation where you're you're given these these certain feats and you know access to certain talents that which you aren't supposed to use. <laughs> Aha! I find a stormtrooper. I kill him with my rancor. I loot his blaster. You know, if I have no, but I but my character has no idea how to use it, even though I have the feat. Uh, um, right. You know, but I mean, and, and though your character might learn to wield a blaster pistol later in, in their career, you you won't have to suffer through having actu- having to actually take the feat like an Ewok or a Gamorrean, as you said, would. Right. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a really tough thing, man. It requires a good role player to make that distinction because mechanically you're going to have all this ability, but you shouldn't be using it. And that can be very frustrating for a player. Yeah. Um. Other frustrations, uh, you're reliant on animals for a lot of your abilities, you know? Uh, beast trick, command beast, they're very useful in certain situations. <laughs> um, you know, and depending on your GM and how they set things up and where they set things up, this could equate to a useless character if you're not careful. Right. Yeah, that can be trouble. And it can be trouble, so be sure to talk this out with your GM. And there's one other really big sticking point for a player, um, you know, playing this type of character. Uh, and it's it's a bit silly, but it, it's an important one to note for role playing purposes. You are a militant feminist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> From a role playing perspective, your character believes believes that men are inferior, and that you have the right and more importantly responsibility to rule over them and protect them. Uh, this can make some for some for some fun role playing, um, or some, for some. Frustrating situations. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, it's really uh, in line with your play group and your GM, what they're comfortable with. So it's something you really want to consider the consequences of before you make that decision. So okay, let's let's talk about the GM side of things. Oh uh, boy. Oh yeah. I think I think GMing a Death Mary Witch comes with a whole new level of pitfalls and things to be wary of. Um. What are, what are things that come to your mind for the GM, man? Uh, trying to GM well, okay, parts. all the <laughs> all the very very weird role playing situations, the r- interactions with NPCs. What if you have two males in the party, and what if you have all males in the party, and one Dathomiri witch? Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, there's what just if, you know, what if we're trying to negotiate with you know the ruler of a of a of, a, of another world, who's this guy, and the prime negotiator is this witch. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, that um, could be trouble. 
you'd have to really plan in advance. Yeah. The the bigger sticking point for me, I mean, obviously the role playing constraint is a big deal, but in the same vein are the beasts. Okay. Dude, I guarantee your average Death and Mary Witch player will want a Rancor. Okay. It's part of the culture, it's part of the heritage, it's part of the the way this 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 character is supposed to be played. But then you run into all these problems, okay? Transporting the Rancor. <laughs> Unless you're running the entire campaign on Dathomir. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, what, what are you, you going to take Snookums with you? <laughs> all right, boy, get into the cargo hold. <laughs> Go fetch, fetch, good boy, good boy. Here, Fuzzy. Oh, here's, a nice, here's a nice bantha. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it can get a bit much. Um, but, you know, e- even if you don't give her one, okay, what if she encounters one? And tames it. She has the ability to do so. Do you let her keep it? Oh, mommy, can we keep it? Can you keep it? Or, or do you deny her the ability, perhaps by pr- never presenting the situation? And is that fair to the player or the character? Okay? Talk to the player about this and try to keep things balanced. Ah, uh, fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. Your, your average Death and Mary Witch player is going to want to have some type of animal companion. Um, a rancor might be a bit much. I know it's iconic to the to the, to the tradition, but from a from a balance perspective, it's a little silly um, as a, as a PC. Um, a fair compromise is perhaps the use of a less overpowered beast companion. And check out the unknown regions for ideas on this. There's lots of great companion beasts that don't exactly uh, you know have the whole rancor. Yeah, sand- that thing. CL12. Yeah, but just saying. Just saying. So, uh, for our, our Halloween episode, we have uh, talked about the witches of Dathomir. Um, I hope this has been an entertaining episode, and we've you know exposed you to a little bit of, of this uh, unusual force tradition. But, I don't know, man. In retrospect, I think this is rarely going to be an episode that a PC or a player is going to look at, Dave. This is something more of... I mean, for those GMs that are going to be having a Dathomir witch NPC and want to build properly, not a role properly you know i have a real hard time seeing a pc moving in this direction yeah you know it would be a challenge to say the least yeah i think so too but you know that's just me that's just it oh wow did you hear that That i did hear that that was weird okay but as we say because i hit the wrong button Sad, sad piano. Sad piano. Sad pant music. Um, well, thank you for tuning in, Gamer Nation. Hope you all enjoy your Halloweens. Um, this has been a, an enjoyable show and, and fun to start. You know, fun to get back on the air after a couple weeks. Life's been kind of crazy. Yep. Sorry, only about thirty of you were able to make it into UStream, but of course, you know it is a Sunday morning, and um, our production <laughs> it is. schedule isn't exactly clockwork these days. No, no, I, I I couldn't do a late show tonight because I'm flying out. I I, I got to wake up at four a.m. tomorrow morning. Got to leave the house by five. Plus, it's baby Jana's, Darth Jana's first, first Halloween. Halloween tonight. No, no, it's just so tickle pink. Yes, uh, yeah, you got to put. Oh, uh, the picture of her in her little flower costume is just adorable. <laughs> it is adorable. I'll have to get that up on the forums. Yeah. Oh yeah, put that up on the forums. That'd be awesome. I'll get, I'll get, 
Flower Power by Darth Jaina. Flower Power by Darth Jaina. She electrifies you with cuteness. Ha ha ha. 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 Give us a call. Go to the forums. Shoot us an email. Let us know what you want us to talk about because this is your show and we want to talk about what you want us to talk about. We've had some good requests recently and um, like to get some more in the pipe. Absolutely. So, and of course, head to the uh, the website, d20radio.com, and uh, you only have, gosh, what, uh, 13 hours left. Less than that. 12 hours and, and, and from where I'm speaking right now, 12 hours and... Uh, 55 minutes yep. to to take advantage of that early bird D20 Radio partner sign up and get all those bonus tiles from Christopher West. So do it. Do it now. And send us some liners while you're at it. We'd love we'd love to get some uh, some liners. You know, call and tell us why you never listened to the Order 66 podcast. We'd love to hear it. That would be greatness. I don't have to start recycling all of them. I mean, we've got a bunch, but you know, we can always use more. <laughs> can we can never and you can always we can, Always use more. Always, God. always. And plus, we've got uh, the potential anyway for a uh, a decent, if not um, a decent, I guess, new segment that I hope that we'll debut here pretty soon. Mm. I certainly hope. But we will see how that goes and uh, because that how podcasts go. That, that how podcasts go. Yep. So with that. With that, thank you, Asian. Peace, love, and good gaming. And keep the dice rolling. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com. This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at StarWars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at Wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content on this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. 